Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. Joining me is frequent guest Dr. Jesse Keenan of Tulane University. In this episode, we're going to talk about the newly released federal adaptation plans. Jesse has done a deep dive on some of the plans and comes on to discuss what he's learned. We'll go over the various strengths and weaknesses of the plans, of which there are many. This is the first of a two-part series. Jesse and I originally were only going to cover some departments and agencies, but we quickly decided after completing this episode, we need to do a second part. So some of you might be thinking, where is the Justice Department or State? And my former colleagues at the Department of Interior are thinking, why did we skip DOI? Well, we're working on it, and that second episode will be out soon. If you're looking for a thoughtful, deep look at many of these federal plans, this episode delivers. I know I have many listeners in the government or who work directly with the federal government. Please have a listen and share with your colleagues. Jesse has done a great service by doing the heavy lifting for you, and you're going to have a thorough understanding of where we're at from the executive branch point of view. Okay, upcoming episodes. Folks from the United Nations Environment Program come on to discuss their new adaptation podcast, Resilience, the Global Adaptation Podcast. Always love promoting other climate podcasts, and we'll talk shop around international adaptation. Also returning is Laura Shifter from the Aspen Institute, who'll give us an update on the work she's doing with K-12 Climate Action, which is bringing climate change into school curricula across the nation. Also coming on is Cal Inman, founder of Climate Check. We're going to discuss some of the new tools available in the real estate sector, helping people plan for climate change. Yes, many great episodes in the pipeline. Okay, let's learn about the new Federal Adaptation Action Plans with Dr. Jesse Keenan. Hey, Adapters, welcome back to a very exciting episode. Returning to the pod is frequent guest, Dr. Jesse Keenan. Jesse is an associate professor of real estate at the School of Architecture at Tulane University. Welcome back, Jesse. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Of course, it's always a treat to have you on, Jesse. All right, so this is what we've been waiting for. With the Biden administration, we expected a big pivot on climate issues and on adaptation. So recently, all federal agencies released their own agency adaptation plans. That is music to my ears. But just because they developed a plan doesn't mean it's a good plan or they've prepared to implement the plan. So I brought you, Jesse, on to do the gut check on these plans, discuss a bit what's in them, and where do we go from here? So first off, let's do that. Set some context here. What's going on? Well, listen, so much to talk about, so much work. We'll talk about the strengths and weaknesses of that work. And let me just say that these are my reflections. I've taken the time to read really hundreds of pages of plans and reviewed them in detail and also had an opportunity to sort of analyze different things, look at the relationship between the different plans, the consistencies, the synergies, and really see how this lines up as a consolidated federal policy. In part, that's what we were promised by the Biden administration in terms of national leadership making this a priority. We understand that in rhetorical terms, but what does it really mean in terms of public administration and public policy? Is that really shaping up? So these are my opinions. I haven't talked to people in the federal government or the White House about these plans. So just take that for what it's worth. So right now, what we saw recently was the release of 23 department and agency climate adaptation. The titles vary. Sometimes they're climate action plans. 
climate adaptation and resilience plans, but it's largely focused on adaptation. It's from you know U.S. Department of Agriculture all the way down to the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation. So a lot of different perspectives, a lot of different missions. This was managed by the Office of the Federal Chief Sustainability Officer, who sits within the Council of Environmental Quality. Historically, this is someone who's really a climate mitigation person and a sustainability person, and not really someone who has historically been tasked with resilience and adaptation work. And that still stands. We're not going to name names today. I think it's best to kind of look at this from an organizational and institutional perspective. But I think it's fair to say that the current incumbent in this position is indeed not an adaptation person. So that the task for managing and developing this went to um, others in that organization who have a kind of adaptation title. Right now, currently, there's really just one person in that office who's managing all of these climate adaptation challenges. There's really not any identifiable organizational structure within Council of Environmental Quality otherwise or OSTP. This really is falling into this office for good and for bad. And I wouldn't say bad, but there's strengths and weaknesses to the personnel who are tasked with this. And and we kind of see a little bit of unevenness along the way that we can talk about. There's plenty of good work here, but there's some limitations. And I think part of that is this is a complex world. There's a lot of different types of methods and analysis and ideas about what adaptation is or could be. And I think that relative degree of maturity is reflected in what we're going to talk about today. On some level, you know, we have seen some real investment in personnel. Um, This has been a challenge. Many of the people who are tasked with all of these plans, but across the federal government with climate change are on detail. That means they're essentially being borrowed from one agency or entity to the other. And that's, you know, they're usually shorter term commitments and not necessarily always meaning that you're getting, you're kind of filling in, right? It's like having a bunch of substitutes. These are the subject matter experts in their areas, but there are limitations to how far you can do that. And ultimately, I think as a government, but also in the public, private, and civic sectors, we're going to have to make investments in in people with true expertise that are indeed quite specialized. But you know what? We're so far so good. We're only nine months in or 10 months in. I don't want to jump the gun there, but ultimately, you know, we do need to make those kinds of commitment in terms of human capital and human development. I think one, you know, limitation of that is the White House has brought in a lot of environmental justice experts, and that's critically important for understanding the distributional impacts and the procedural justice. For both climate justice and environmental justice, there are significant long-term implications to this work, but also some immediate short-term and here and now considerations, you know, for the people in Michigan and Newark that are standing in line for bottled water right now, that is a here and now. That is a different set of considerations than a lot of times what we're talking about relative to the time horizons and stakeholder orientations for climate adaptation, particularly from a public administration point of view. And I think that some, there was some assumptions that a lot of these environmental justice folks that were coming in and advising and helping and sort of populating the government would be able to bring expertise on resilience and particularly community resilience. But really, it's a different, you know, environmental justice work and advocacy is a different set of skills and expertise that's quite distinct from, in many ways, the technical areas of expertise associated with adaptation across so many different fields. So it's just one component of many areas. And frankly, I think we should all challenge ourselves to think about these distributional effects and the proportionality of who pays and who benefits from the adaptation. So it's something we kind of have to mainstream for ourselves, but we really haven't, I think, committed as the administration, I say we, but I think the administration really hasn't committed to fully 
either mainstreaming environmental justice, but also respecting the fact there's a lot of different types of expertise and resilience and adaptation that have to be internalized in the government. So it's a massive coordination problem. It's going to take, frankly, a generation to play out. We don't have the same depth of bench that we have for people in climate mitigation or energy or renewable energy, right? There's multiple generations of experts and development of expertise in that. So Early stages, early level of maturity, a lot of good people working super hard. And I think as we get into these plans, we'll get a better sense of who's got momentum one way or the other. Okay, fantastic. All right. So we're going to jump into this. We're going to go through some of these departments and agencies. We're not going to cover all 23 of the department or agencies. We're going to learn a bit about what they're up to. So Jesse, for each of these, could you give a little, just a really quick description in case people aren't that familiar with sort of like mission of a particular agency really more broadly, but we're going to start off with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Yeah. So the U.S. Department of Agriculture has really been one of the leaders. It's a great place to start. Well, Ag, A, well, that's a great place to start. But more importantly, it's a great place to start because they've been doing a lot of work for a long time. And they've been doing the work because, well, climate change impacts our day-to-day operations of environmental management, forestry, and crops, and food. You know, it's the here and now, right? And there's been a lot of leadership and a lot of expertise. And formally within the field of climate adaptation, adaptation science, a lot of early career and early scientists and sort of expertise was actually coming from agriculture, coming from tourism management as well, but a lot of work for many, many years in agriculture. So what we have is called the Action Plan for Climate Adaptation and Resilience from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. That's how they're titling this. And it brought a tear to my eye to see that climate adaptation and resilience together really sharing and having their own sort of set of definitions. And their Because that's the way we have to think about these things. As we recognize, we've talked about many times, adaptation and resilience are distinct concepts that have dif- different meanings. In fact, there's different types of resilience we'll talk about. So right off the bat, great title, Action Plan for Climate Adaptation Resilience. So what they're doing is they're not reinventing the wheel. And I think we see that throughout a lot of these adaptation projects is they're building on work that they've done in the past, which I think is absolutely critically important. And for USDA, they're building on the climate hubs. So the climate hubs were different regions of the country that were really focused on data and exchange of adaptation practices and really going out and doing that sort of ag extension work. And we usually think of ag extension in terms of state ag extension, which by the way, does so much today from housing to economic development. It really extends far beyond agriculture, but they're building off these regional expertise and these regional networks of information that have been able to connect with a wide variety of stakeholders in the broader sort of industrial ecology and broader networks of environmental management, including forestry and many other things. Right off the bat, they're building on that network and they're getting into climate technologies and climate intelligence technologies. They're really trying to understand how we monitor soil health, water quality and water quantity, right? driving some of that primary set of indicators associated with climate impacts. But they're also getting into other dimensions, which may not be so intuitive. Many people may or may not realize that the crop insurance is, we, we tend to talk about national flood insurance program, and that's the very here and now. But crop insurance is a huge public policy, set of public policies and products that are very important and have a, a lot of sort of relevance to climate change dialogue. So what they're talking about in this report is the idea of different revenue protection products, particularly those that may come along with diversifying crops, um, as may be necessary with changing range of soil health or water or soil water quality and quantity as it may change with climate change, uh, shifting pathogens that are being driven in or have some attribution to climate. Um, so that diversification gives us levels of redundancy and some pathways and workarounds for maintaining some constant yield 
in productive ways. So they're going to utilize different financial products to help incentivize that. And that also goes towards shifting production requirements. So as climate is changing, certain types of crops are going to become more suitable for certain types of climates and therefore shifting the production requirements and how that aligns with crop insurance is going to be really critical. I'm not a expert in this, but I can. I think we can all appreciate the extent to which the government helps shape what we grow and incentivize those markets and have been for a long time. It also extends to forestry management and thinking about ecological resilience. We, we understand now that there are different types of resilience. And in public policy, particularly in the United States, there's three types of resilience that really sort of drive our work. It's engineering resilience, sometimes called disaster resilience, but it's really engineering resilience. It's ecological resilience and it's community resilience. And each one of these concepts has a different set of practices, ideas, methods, and they're distinct from each other. In fact, they're quite distinct. And so here they're talking in the context of ecological resilience about forestry management, things like removing dead trees. There's a billion dead trees in California. You know, part of that is, you know, driven by uh, rain shifting for pathogens and invasive species. And, And part of what USDA wants to do is begin to advance new techniques for monitoring invasive species and, pa- and, and pathogens along the way, which is really interesting in many ways because there's a, there's such an interesting debate right now about when does an invasive species really just become a climate migrant, right? You know, at what point is an invasive species really just part of that range shifting? And I think there's some really difficult questions that have risen even since the Obama administration in terms of environmental management and conservation biology, which is if we're trying to sort of stabilize and conserve a particular area, we can do that to some extent, but then we have these kind of macro systems around us that are changing, right? So we can only drive a kind of preservationist tendency or a conservation tendency so far when dependent and interdependent and let's say panarchic ecological systems around us are pushing and pulling us in ways that challenge that kind of stability uh, regime, if you will. So they're also interested in, you know, the R&D, right? The research and development, which has been so critical in partnership with the private sector. So developing drought resistant varieties and varietals and plants, also extending that, you know, from the crop itself, but also thinking about the supply chain and thinking about engineering resilience for the supply chain, getting crops to processing and storage. I mean, we've had some spectacular extreme events and weather events that have taken out some of our capacity for, for grain storage, for instance, and other things that have disrupted our supply chain where many of us are, are are sort of more tuned to what supply chain disruption looks like today in a post-COVID context. But this has been something that's been challenging agricultural systems and food production systems for some time, for a number of years now. Adaptive capacity of farming and migrant communities. So we kind of move from into the economy into the more human demands. And it's really, I think, amazing that they're using and framing adaptive capacity with is what is the capabilities, the resources, and also the sort of intelligence or capacity, and I mean intelligence in terms of information sourcing and, and analytic to be able to withstand these various impacts, but then also to transform and fundamentally adapt in ways that um, ultimately reduce vulnerability, particularly in the context of humans and human development. So they're talking about, you know, how do we drive adaptive capacity for farming and migrant communities to extreme heat, thinking about heat, thinking about rather health as a core element of community resilience, which by the way, that's a huge dimension now of how we understand and plan for community resilience as one of the, let's say, 
trilogy of categorical types of resilience. Health is a big part of that, but it also extends into USDA, which has a very active housing and housing quality and housing accessibility programs, uh, particularly for migrant workers. You know, how does things like extreme heat and greater environmental exposure play into their capacity to adapt? Housing is part of that. Health is part of that. And that's all being internalized into this plan. All right, Jesse, thanks for that. And in a previous career, I did a lot of work with USDA, a lot of management stuff. And I don't think people realize that USDA is like the biggest conservation funder in the country. Huge sums of money, a lot of agricultural payments that have pretty modest environmental benefits, but like the Conservation Reserve Program, the Conservation Reserve Enhancement Program. And we were worked on some white papers, try to make that pivot, the Adaptation Reserve Program, looking at these opportunities, to the landscape that they're trying to get these environmental outcomes on, but make that pivot really start to factor in climate change in working with these farmers in these broad landscapes. And I I hope someone really goes big at USDA because they have these huge sums of money to kind of spend. And they also have a great infrastructure of actually interacting with landowners. Like that's that in itself is decades in the making. So I think USDA could be a huge leader in this, but they are very slow to kind of reform, especially when it gets down to at the farm level. So I think some huge opportunities. Yeah, I think I 100% agree. And in fact, I think they are among the federal agencies and departments, one of the true leaders. And there's a lot of expertise there. Any large institution is going to take time to pivot and, and remobilize, but I think they're well on their way. All right, Jesse, let's move on to the Department of Commerce. Okay, so much fun stuff to read here. This is titled Department of Commerce 2021 Climate Action Plan for Adaptation and Resilience. Again, Great title, draws you in. Also, give them credit for amazing graphic design. (laughs) Some of these departments, I swear, they just dropped it into a Word document, but Commerce is designing it. They're thinking about it. They're communicating. Give them credit for that because that, guess what? That really matters. So what's Commerce doing so much? They start out, and I'm not going to cover everything, but these things that jump out to me, technical assistance of grants for vulnerability assessments, right? Commerce has NOAA and NIST and all of these great science entities that operate in commerce. And here we are taking that science and saying, how can we help communities, help local governments do vulnerability assessments? So providing that technical assistance as well as technical assistance grants and amplifying that that as a resource sounds straightforward. Aren't we already doing that? But it's important. And I think we're going to begin to really see that uh, be amplified. They are really seeking to integrate climate change considerations into nearly everything they're doing from shoreline development to fisheries management. So we really see this mainstreaming playing out program by program by program. NOAA and NIST, National Institute of Standards and Technology, are working together for what they call a climate-ready infrastructure requirement. So basically codes and designs and standards. If we're going to make an investment in the future of our infrastructure, we have to understand how we're going to design that to what standard, to what level of performance across so many different infrastructure sectors. That's a lot of work. That's well underway. And I think what we see now is a partnership with NOAA that's got the climate and the atmospheric science and the oceanographic science. And, you know, we know what that 
is with NIST, which are really applied science and engineering working together. And I think that's a, um, I think that's a partnership that's going to yield something that's going to have a wide uh, range of impact, private sector as well. Here's an, another interesting thing that they're doing. They're um, seeking to fast track the patent process for adaptation related technologies. I'm not sure how that works. I'm not sure quite what qualifies, but I really like that, right? We need to get technologies to the market and we need to, and here they're prioritizing that. And I think that's potentially really interesting. Developing new measurement products and indicators at the U.S. Census Bureau is something I've been calling on for some time now. And there's a lot of different things we need to understand about consumer behaviors and preferences and just why are people moving and where are they moving to, particularly those persons that are being displaced or electing to move in part because of climate change or extreme weather. So I think having the U.S. Census Bureau engaged in that, it's going to be really critical for uh, supporting decision-making and policymaking. And finally, at Commerce, integrating climate and climate considerations into their economic development administration and the investments that they're making. That's really important, particularly because cities and communities across this country are beginning to see the opportunities for climate adaptation as a means for competitive economic development, right? They are in competition with each other and in many ways in in competition for a new economy and a new economy associated with climate change. So what we can do to kind of stimulate that, I think is critically important. Well, great. Noah's always been a leader in the field. And even in the last four or five years, when things got a little bit tough, they were out there putting out some great information. And it's fantastic. And I I look forward to some of the other things that they're doing. And let's just pivot. And this is actually kind of exciting because more recently, we're hearing about climate change and national security. It's finally getting its due. So let's pivot. Let's talk about the Department of Defense. Well, Department of Defense, this is titled Climate Adaptation Plan. Super straightforward, Love it. Again, well-designed, well-laid out. People really thinking about this and how they communicate it, not just to an external audience, but to an internal audience. Because one of the things we're seeing across all these plans is really an opportunity or a recognition of the necessity to develop climate literacy on staff and among personnel and for a lot of internal training, right? And that's really important. So at DOD, it's about monitoring data and intelligence, right? They're trying to translate what we understand about science into on-the-ground impacts and on-the-ground realities. And that translation happens in strategic terms, operational and tactical decision-making. And at DOD, that plays out in so many different ways. You know, training and operating extreme weather. I think we've had a number of training deaths in recent years from extreme heat, and you have to get equipment to operate in new operational parameters that are beyond their what they were designed for. And that is an enormous challenge in its own right. Also thinking about service member health, right? I remember going to a presentation a number of years ago and the estimates of uh, skin cancer and the financial burden ultimately of caring for all of these service members that would be getting skin cancer because they're spending so much time outside and they may or may not be adequately mitigating that through uh, suntan lotion or whatever it may be. Huge challenge in thinking about the health implications. I'm also thinking about the new environmental operating conditions for tanks and missiles and just an enormous set uh, um, range of logistical considerations. But what's DOD really good at that we need R&D, right? Research and development. And they're really thinking about the capacity to promote and translate that innovation. And, you know, example I give give people in the past is that I think it, I, someone's going to have to fact check me on this, but I want to say more than 50% of casualties in Iraq and Afghanistan came from guarding fuel convoys 
DOD was really into grid and energy resilience and basically a kind of engineering resilience that's applied to grid and energy systems. That stuff has been starting to been domesticated and commercialized in different ways. It's really advancing what we do here. So leveraging that R&D capacity is, is going to be important. Also incorporating engineering resilience and nature-based models into what Army Corps and their command infrastructure and what how they're designing and managing that. So it's not just our, you know, brick and mortar engineering resilience tasks for hazard mitigation. It's also thinking about nature-based models. And we're going to talk about Army Corps here in a bit. Again, going back to training, but also climate literacy training for troops and personnel. And that's something we see across all of these agencies and departments, really thinking through what that means. I think from my point of view as an academic, someone who's taught this for a long time, it raises some fundamental questions about exactly what you are teaching people. I mean, NOAA has a wonderful climate change literacy sort of standards and pedagogy that teachers can utilize. But I think it's a huge challenge to actually think about, well, okay, what if we're teaching adaptation and resilience concepts and modes of analysis and, and the like, what are they teaching? I think I have an idea what I would teach. And I'd be curious to see how that matures over time and to what extent the federal government and the White House ultimately helps guide that curriculum. It's going to be important. And finally, coming back to environmental justice considerations, there's a line in here and there's some mention of thinking about, you know, they're constantly managing and testing stuff. The DOD has a big footprint and and starting to think more concretely about what that footprint really means in terms of proportional impacts or disproportional impacts on various communities in and around their facilities and their bases. And I think that in terms of environmental justice, I think is a is a positive potential step forward. Well, that's all very encouraging. And, and on the R&D side, you know, I think when we start hearing how DARPA, you know, the Defense Advanced Research Project Group, they're getting into the adaptation space, you know, that the Defense Department's getting really serious about things. And just to, I'd like to comment on the climate literacy. And I want to come back to that at the end of the, the summary. But I had Commander Andrea Cameron. She's a instructor at the Naval War College on and she teaches a course. And she came on before Biden took office. But she, teaching a great course, but what part of the, to me, the issue is, and I want, I'm curious how this is unfolding, especially at DOD is it it wasn't a mandatory class. These are sort of a compulsory, oh, if you're interested, you can take these kind of things. Are we going to see more mandatory classes for, you know, troops and personnel around these topics, or is this going to be just those people who take an interest in the first place? And uh, I think that that'll demonstrate how serious I think the whole agency is. You know, reading through this and other plans, I, I get the sense that this is going to be compulsory on some level, but also integrated into just the professional competency, right? How do we evaluate the jobs that our people are doing? What are they thinking about? It's not just, you know, memorize this and take a test and, you know, here's your certificate. It's actually internalizing this stuff into what people do day to day. So I think I, I have a sense that it's not going to be for the special interests. It's going to be for what people are doing on a day day basis. I hope. I hope so too. And okay, so you mentioned it. We're going to transition now into the U.S. Army Corps. Yeah, I don't want to spend too much time on here. Obviously, they've done so much. Army Corps has their, despite being part of DOD formally, they have their own climate action plan. And there's a lot here. By the way, Army U.S. Army Corps engineers has their own climate adaptation policy statement. So they've taken a lot of time to take adaptation and internalize it into codes and engineering regs and you know how they procedurally think about their management of infrastructure and what they're responsible for. Most notably, they have a dedicated official for adaptation policy who's the assistant secretary of the army for civil work. So at a very high level, they have, this is the person, this is what adaptation flows to in terms of the kind of org management, uh, organizational management of it all. But here at the end of the day, the bottom line, 
new infrastructure, and particularly new, but managing old infrastructure, but for new infrastructure, building for future clients, right? And I would say, reading through all this, that they're mostly concerned with the exposure to sea level rise into flooding. And to a lesser extent, I would say infrastructure sensitivity. And what I mean by that is that there's a big focus on exposure, that is where infrastructure is, but a less of an interest or a focus on how you're actually designing and changing and shaping that infrastructure. And so I think what I would hope to see is what you know what NOAA and NIST are doing, and remember NIST is National Institute of Standards and Technology, the applied scientists are sort of engineering experts. My hope is that what NIST and NOAA are doing are going to soon be in dialogue with Army Corps. And so we begin to integrate the standards and the sort of applied science of how climate shapes decision-making for design and engineering into the actual development and operations and management activities at Army Corps. So it wasn't clear to me, you know, because they're so focused on the exposure side of things, mostly having to do with sea level rise and flooding, not a lot on extreme heat and other dimensions that are critically important. I don't think this document is the be-all, end-all. Let me say that almost all of these documents are about between mm, 20 and 34, 35 pages or something. They're all pretty concise to their credit. Um, so I'm sure there's a lot they are leaving out. But my, my goal here. And I think our collective goal should be that, that those groups begin to uh, speak to each other and operate in dialogue so that the people translating the science into the applied science, into the engineering, into the on-the-ground um, construction and management, you know, we, we close that loop. And I, I'm hoping we're going to get there. So one other thing that I think is really interesting that I think is totally cutting edge is that they're thinking about designed adaptive capacity. And they have some wonderful graphics about how they're designing infrastructure so that as, let's say, sea level rise progresses at a couple of different potential trajectories, right? And we can talk about 4.5 or 8.5 or whatever it may be, whatever that rate of sea level rise may be, that they're designing the infrastructure so that it has the capacity to be built upon, uh, raising a, you know, a berm or an additional layer of arming or pumping capacity, whatever that may be. They're really thinking through and articulating that in ways that is a reflection of practice, but is very clear. And I think that it probably reflects an awful lot of work that's going on. Army Corps is also updating its land and management plans, water control. They're thinking about new measures of vulnerability. I mean, one of the challenges, of course, people always have about Army Corps is that just, you know, it's cost-benefit analysis. And of course, that protects property rights and people with wealth and property. And it biases a set of considerations that reinforce wealth on some measure and leave out an awful lot. But I think through here, there's a real ambition to move beyond that, to think about effectiveness, efficiency, and fairness. And that's going to require new measures and new forms of uh, vulnerability indicators that are critically important. And I think in doing so, they really want to translate this these activities to help support state planning. And that's something that has been available and there's been sort of awkward grant programs and it's, it hasn't been consistent for states to partner with Army Corps to really do vulnerability assessments and planning. But I think here we see um, some real efforts to, to, to invest in that. And that's going to require new forms of data and data collection. And they're really talking about expanding those data products. There's already thousands of different types of, well, thousands of different users of different types that are using different data sources from Army Corps. 
for. And I think they're really thinking about how can we begin to develop these products to reach an e- even greater uh, set of users and maybe even maybe even consumers on some level. There's also an evaluation of existing adaptation barriers to inflammation. So we're driving the planning, we're driving implementation, but there's all kinds of barriers that stand in the way. And some of those barriers are not necessarily bad things. And we can certainly talk about that, but they're really, I think, keen to how we what stands in the way of implementation, particularly because we're at an end of about a decade-long set of planning activities among the forerunners in climate adaptation. And as we move into implementation, there's a number of you know structural, non-structural, important, not-so-important barriers that stand in front of us. And I think they're very attuned to that. And again, for them, a lot of this is you know to accomplish all of this and more, again, internal training for their workforce and their personnel is something that they really highlight as being important. Well, I just want to plug the Army Corps. They have a major initiative. It's called Engineering with Nature. And it's, I mean, it's a very formal thing. And that they've just, I think, released a, a handbook on that that's been like five years in the making. And Todd Bridges heads that unit. I've, I've met with him before. He's actually been on the podcast. And it's just nature-based solutions to a lot of these engineering issues. And so I think the Army Corps is very serious about this. They actually have their own podcast, Engineering with Nature. So definitely check it out. So I think it's fantastic that they're really trying to institutionalize that the natural approach to to what they're doing there. So kudos to them. Yeah. And you know what? It's not so clear cut, not so easy. I mean, there's a lot of operations, you know, O&M operations, uh, maintenance obligations that come along with green and natural infrastructure. It's not like you just build it and nature takes over. And there's a lot of learning that's still happening. So it's something we have to keep in mind um, how challenging this really is. Okay. So this next department, I think has such positive outcomes to the public if they do it right. But I think they actually have the hardest task when you think of federalism and such. And then what I'm talking about is the Department of Education. Yeah. Department of Education. Uh, I think we can take it up a notch when it comes to graphic design. This is entitled U.S. Department of Education Climate Adaptation Plan version 3.0. <laughs> Uh, not particularly exciting, just kind of a white sheet of paper. It's like, okay, someone's pushing the paper here. I can feel it. We need to get people jazzed about this at Department of Education. You know, they have public education grants for climate and sustainability literacy and education. This is something they want to continue uh, to do and support. They also, of course, acknowledge their own internal climate literacy training for their staff. They have grant programs for school infrastructure, but this is really about climate mitigation and sustainability. And they have grants for vulnerability assessments for schools and school systems, operations, facilities, big focus on indoor air quality, which is really important, particularly climatic terms or in non-climatic terms. You know, when you have you don't have enough air exchanges, you have mold problems, there's all kinds of things that impact how children learn and perform and get tested and evaluated in schools. We're, we're learning more and more about this. Climate makes that more difficult, particularly many schools that don't even have adequate air conditioning or air conditioning at all. We know now empirically that children have, you know, inferior testing outcomes and learning outcomes in the context where they're not having adequate air exchanges or it's just too hot. I think we could probably all relate to that at some point in our own experience. So, you know, they're thinking about what can we do to support these vulnerability assessments for these school systems. And finally, I mean, there's not a lot here, but finally there is starting to think about, you know, how they systematize what have been traditionally emergency appropriations to support school systems in a post-disaster suspension of schools. I know, you know, in New Orleans, I think in Jefferson, Paris, after Hurricane Ida, here we are in October of 2021. I think we're a month and a half after the hurricane. I think there's still just thousands of 
school children that are not back in school for the school year. How do you do that? Well, they've got a model for supporting post-disaster suspension of schools, how they can come in and help resource and fill those gaps, and certainly challenging in the age of COVID. But I think there's an ambition to sort of amplify that and really think that you know if we're going to have more extreme events, more disasters, perhaps we need to think about what um, what that impact is on schools and how we can have workarounds to maintain some continuity of educational experience. Well, I have high hopes for this department. I think of these literacy grants. I mean, national literacy around climate change is so important, but I mean, how many grants can you give to Vermont and Massachusetts, the states that are probably applying to these things? Some of the other states that are probably going to be impacted more, I wonder how much they're actually applying for these things. So it's it's not an easy department to kind of work at the local level. So good luck to them. All right, Jesse, let's pivot here. This is interesting. This next department, you know, you typically think of climate mitigation and the carbon side and the energy side, Department of Energy. How are they doing on adaptation and resilience? Yeah, so Department of Energy has the 2021 Climate Adaptation and Resilience Plan. Solid graphic design, good color scheme. People (laughs) seem to really care about. Again, you get credit for these things. So what are they interested in? Well, they're really thinking about investment in engineering resilience at DOE and DOE-owned infrastructure, right? Start with what you own. Electrical distribution systems, updating modern transformers, I assume for larger peaks or uh, associated challenges in in managing the grid. So you have to, you need modern transformers. Transformers, insulating upgrades for pipes and conduits. We saw that with Texas and why that was such a challenge. Pole replacements, right? Moving away, moving into more composite poles that can withstand greater wind loads. Grounding infrastructure, transmission lines, upgrading transmission uh, for ta- greater tower, transmission towers rather for greater wind loads and heat loads. You know, all of these things that go into the physical infrastructure that DOE controls and has plans of. Also looking at things like declines in water for hydropower out west. California had made investments in that for upgrading turbines for lower flow power output. And this is a new, you know, a new era for hydropower out west. And so really thinking about what that means. Also looking at land management practices to reduce wildfire risk. If you live in Northern California, you know exactly what that means uh, in terms of the risk of, you know, transmission lines and lines uh, sparking wildfires. So how do you think about that in terms of land management? Internally, also looking at, and I think this is very interesting, we haven't talked about this yet, climate procurement requirements for uh, climate risk disclosure, as well as greenhouse gases. DOE, I'm sure, is out there procuring an awful lot, but how do they use those procurement systems to impose climate risk that is physical and transition climate risk and greenhouse gas exposure among their supply chain? So I think that's really important. And finally, adaptation resilience to support environmental justice communities near DOE sites. So how can they be better neighbors, if you will, particularly for those communities burdened by uh, degrees of environmental justice? So I think that's a really interesting and very concrete set of actions and plans here, starting with what they have and then beginning to work with the industry to set new standards and to really mainstream resilience investments or engineering resilience investments within energy and power infrastructure systems. Okay. So for this next one, it's always interesting to kind of get inside the mind of a department that you you don't necessarily associate with adaptation, but there's tremendous overlap of what they're doing in the field. And I'm talking about the Department of Health and Human Services. Yeah, listen, we don't have time to cover all of these agencies and departments. So I'm kind of hopping around here, but Health and Human Services has done great work for many years. Let's start with the idea of investing in research to understand emerging health impacts, right? There's from NIH all the way to CDC's very successful Building Resilience Against Climate Effects BRACE program. There's a lot of different programs 
incorporating and driving research about climate change into health impacts is uh, critically important. And in fact, there's a lot of data sets that we utilize outside of health, uh, particularly in the built environment that are coming from CDC that help us understand not only impacts, but also what are the indicators for community resilience, for instance, that relate to healthy communities. Tracking heat data and developing early warning systems for understanding heat and the potential to warn people about when there are dangerous heat conditions, particularly in urban areas. Monitoring uh, zoonotic uh, disease transmission with changing ranges. Tracking geospatial distribution of toxic substances. I mean, one thing we've known for years, or we've anticipated, and this has been a conversation in EPA as well, is that you know, you know, toxic brownfield sites and toxic dumps and various toxic sites. Th- these substances and chemicals are moving when we have extreme precipitation events or when we have more groundwater than we anticipated. So certain extreme events will drive the distribution and transmission of toxic waste. And so we have to understand that, track that, and and understand the broader implications for human health. Also looking at, um, this is really cool because from a technical point of view, we can talk, we all know a lot about MERV filters in the age of COVID and what we can and can't filter out. But what can we support in terms of wildfire air filtration technologies? There was a good body of research that just came out or a research paper came out maybe even yesterday that more people on the East Coast of the United States uh, die from health impacts from smoke from wildfires out West than do people on the West Coast. Now that could just be, that could just be a population density thing, (laughs) right? And it may actually be more severe. I, I don't know. I have to look. But what, you know, supporting that technological innovation for filtering out uh, wildfire smoke and pollution is really interesting. And I, and that it's good to see someone narrowly focused there. Again, they're recognizing their own internal operations, their own business continuity. And they're also recognizing that they need to get out, you know, a lot more grants to support sustainability. They're also thinking about their own space management in terms of sustainability. And here, you know, again, this is 2021 climate action plan is what they're calling it, you get the sense that they're just throwing in a bunch of sustainability and climate mitigation stuff here and not probably as focused on mitigation. And one of the biggest gaps where this comes up is there's really very, and maybe I missed it and someone correct, you know, come back and let me know if I got this wrong. But one big gap that I saw is that they're not really looking at engineering resilience assessments for hospital systems. You know, after Hurricane Sandy and NYU Langone, massive hospital went down. There was significant change in how hospitals began to think about engineering resilience investments, their own continuity, organizational resilience as well. And there's been a lot of learning, a lot of activities. And during the Obama administration, there was a there was a a program, a kind of prototype program or a test program to work with different hospital systems to, you know, develop that learning, invest in how to do it. You know, how do you maintain operations through a disaster or through, you know, a series of climatic events or whatever it may be? Um, how do you protect these facilities? How you, you know, even internalizing renewable energy. So there's a lot of work that's been done. This wasn't reflected in there. And I'm really surprised that's the case. And I think this is one of the challenges of, you know, they got the memo and I guess the memo was to have a climate action memo, but what they were really supposed to be doing is focusing on resilience adaptation. I think for the most part, they got us there, but I'm not sure who was editing or supervising this work because there's just a lot of climate mitigation stuff in there that seems disconnected from their core mission. I imagine heat is just going to dominate what these guys see. And, you know, that's the impact. That's the most mortality associated with the climate change. You're seeing heat 
And I do hope even with the, the big Pacific Northwest heat wave that this department was all over that, that there's a lot of learning to be had from, from that experience. And so that, that, that's my hope. Jesse, we're going to pivot now to agency. I, back in my days when I worked for the federal government and during the Obama years, this agency actually had the most high profile adaptation work going on. You know, it, it's been a long time since then, but I'm talking about the US EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. Yeah. So ostensibly, you would think of all the agencies and departments in the United States government, the EPA should be on top of this. Well, um, their plan, Climate Adaptation Action Plan, well-designed, well-laid out, give them credit, looking good, looking good, easy to navigate through. And actually, some of these plans are not so easy to navigate through. I I love Department of Homeland Security. We're going to come to that. They're telling you how they're going to do it, when they're going to do it, what happens if it goes wrong. It's actually really well laid out. EPA, also well laid out. What they're trying to do here is really mainstream adaptation and climate into their mission. They have a point person, and it's always good to see, hey, this is the person in charge, and this is the EPA's associate administrator for the Office of Policy as the lead official. And here the big focus, there's a couple of areas to look at, but the big focus is on supporting the adaptive capacity of communities and external stakeholders and really focusing on data and information exchange. You know, that has come, there's a lot of different ways to think about that at different levels of stakeholders and organizations. I think what's challenging for me here is there's some really vague implementation tasks and some interim and long-term measures. They talk a lot about supporting adaptive capacity, but they don't really get into the details in any way that reflects what I think think is actually happening or it has happened in the past, even at EPA. And the vagary of it is challenging for me. They rely heavily on an entity called ARCEX. And ARCEX was among various adaptation initiatives and resilience initiatives that was started in the Obama administration. And it's a kind of, it's an adaptation sort of clearinghouse. And it has a lot of experience about resilience and adaptation. They say in this report that they had reached 40,000 communities across the United States of ARCX. I think someone needs to go back and double check that as a factual basis. There's not 40,000 jurisdictions in the United States, as, as far as I know, at least in terms of county and local government jurisdictions. I mean, I don't know. It seems like a large number. Do they mean 40,000 people? I don't know, but it's like super vague. And I really kind of wonder like who was editing in this and why someone didn't pick up. Hey, if you reach 40,000 people, communities in this country, just support I, more power to you, but most people I know have never even heard of ARCX. So it's like good work, good resources, but it also is not integrated at all with U.S. Community Resilience Toolkit. And the U.S. CRT, as we call it, community, U.S. Community Resilience, this is like the White House's baby. This has been the primary source for cataloging, organizing, disseminating infa- uh, information about climate adaptation and resilience to a lot of different communities and stakeholders. Like, okay, why reinvent the wheel here? I mean, ARCX is good, but maybe the, now's the time to integrate that with the U.S. CRT. So I, I don't know. It just seems re- relying on something that's been around for a number years that probably has been under-resourced and not uh, adequately able to capture the market and the communities that want to capture. So I'm a little skeptical. I mean, I hope they're successful, but I think now's the time to just consolidate this. The last thing people want to do is have to go across different government entities to find what they're looking for. And USCRT has been doing that for a number of years. So I'm not sure how much credit they should take for that. But let's talk about what I think they're doing well and where they are very narrowly focused, which is really integrating into their various financial programs. 
programs. They have brownfield grants, they have Indian general assistance programs, the environmental justice small grants programs, they have the wetland program grants, and most importantly, they have their state revolving funds programs and really integrating climate change into all those funds. And I think the challenge for the EPA is how how are these programs going to work and sort of interoperate with other let's say DHS hazard mitigation grant programs, for instance, and, you know, or DOT. These things have never really played well together. There's a lot of conflicting reporting requirements and administrative requirements that add a lot of costs. And, you know, one of the things that we know about hazard mitigation and resilience investments in federal programs is that the the money is actually not being spent in a lot of cases, because a lot of local jurisdictions don't have the institutional capacity to apply and administer the stuff. It's too complex. It's too burdensome. It's not easy to combine different programs. And many gov- local governments are just like, you know what? It's, it's just we can't afford to hire the people necessary to be competitive in this world. So the money ends up going to cities and not necessarily reaching a lot of the communities. By the way, thousands and tens of thousands of communities and I mean, communities, local governments that actually need this work and would benefit the most. So I, I hear you, we're going to integrate climate, but I think, you know, they need to work with OMB and others to really begin to streamline this stuff because the money's not reaching the ground and the money's not being spent. And we know that even with the new BRIC programs that we'll talk about at DHS, perhaps. So well-intended, but I think overall really feeling underwhelmed by this climate adaptation action plan and just a lot of vagary that doesn't connect with, I think, what the real challenges are to look inward about how they can they can streamline and focus. Oh, very interesting. Basically, like I said, you know, Obama years, EPA was leading the, the way on a lot of adaptation related things. All right. So this next department, I think there's just a huge learning opportunity for the public and the, the Department of Homeland Security and the issue of migration and immigration. And like you talk a lot about climate migration. How are, are they really starting to think about it? Then how can the public learn how this department sort of is responding and is putting climate change in that broader context of immigration? I think there's a huge opportunity for the public to learn about it. Yeah. And let me just go back and say that relating to EPA, you made you made a very good point. And let me flesh that out further. You know, if the EPA program and climate adaptation plan is super underwhelming and not particularly as mature as we'd like to see it or developed as we'd like to see it, it's probably because a lot of people just left the EPA in the last administration, right? So it's like, I'm sure they just don't have the same level of personnel that, you know, that you lost a lot of expertise. And frankly, now that I think about it, I think this document probably reflects that. So, hey, if you're listening to this, see what you can do to get a job at EPA and help these folks out. But let's turn to the Department of Homeland Security Climate Action Plan, subtitled Integrating Climate Adaptation into the Department to Strengthen Mission Operations and Infrastructure. Uh, I like how precise DHS really is. Let's start off with what they're doing that other agencies and departments are doing. One, workforce education. Two, supply chain standards, their own procurement. And three, site and facility management, right? What are you, what are you doing in your own house to make sure that you're internalizing uh, resilience and adaptation? Let me so say that getting into this, there's DHS is always known for a very precise vocabulary. There's a lot of complexities when it comes to security and mission areas and in many ways, it feels like DOD light. But to DOD's credit, and we're going to talk about this, DOD is very precise and very orderly in how they use defined terms. And there's a kind of very clear chain of command. And that's what DOD does, right? DHS, let me say that in this case and in this document, the vocabulary is all over the place. This is, I kid you not, there's a phrase that says climate adaptation risk mitigation. <laughs> like, 
Climate adaptation risk mitigation. Um, I think I know what that is, but I'm not quite sure what that is. But when you read it in context, it means nothing. So adaptation is integrating into their resilience framework. Technically, there is a resilience framework. They said that they have gone through this process of integrating adaptation into that. I don't know what it means. They don't really get into, into detail what that means. But I don't want to look totally down on DHS. They're doing a lot of good stuff, right? So, you know, DHS has critical infrastructure assessment intelligence and doing so uh, means that you got to start thinking about climate, but they've been doing that for a number of years. They really have been thinking about that. I think there's just a more of a concentrated commitment of people and expertise to um, diversify what they're really measuring and trying to observe in terms of first, second order impacts and interdependencies and risks. So I think they're just taking it to that next level. There is something called the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, who has been a little bit more up. Most people have never heard of CISA. Most state governments have never heard of CISA. But CISA is becoming a little bit more front and center in terms of being a a point entity for an awful lot as it relates to infrastructure protection. And I think more of a resource. And I think that's a really positive sign. We're not going to name names, but I just want to say, I think there's some real good people there doing very good work. One of the things that they highlight here, and this is really more interesting than anything, is that the nature of cyber physical interactions are such that any kind of macro security capacities that we want to manage so kind of an overarching integrated system of looking at how infrastructure systems are performing at any given moment and integrating that relative to extreme events. Like, it, it, you know, the idea that we can just sit in a huge control room and we can kind of look over the entire infrastructure systems in the United States. That's increasingly becoming limited because of cyber risk. It opens up too many penetration points into these multiple systems. So, In previous years, there's been a lot of a convergence towards the idea of integrating smart cities and things like that. But we're we're moving in the other direction now to have more diversified and more horizontal and distributed forms of infrastructure system, in part because that reduces the number of access points for integrated cyber threats, if that makes sense. And when they talked about that, it may, I honestly had never heard anybody's talk about this, but it made a lot of sense to me. And it makes me feel good that someone's really thinking about that because we do know that after extreme events and hurricanes and things like that, cyber, you know, cyber attacks increase, you know, it's a thing. It's a real hazard that comes along with events themselves. They're trying to integrate. They were really the only entity to talk about integration of climate considerations into NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act. I mean, for any of those in the feds out there or state government or anybody who's worked in government, you know what NEPA is and you know what that means procedurally. Anytime that you're engaging in expenditure of federal resources, you have to think about, you know, your climate impacts, study them, evaluate them, open it up for public comment and do environmental impact statements. It's a huge set of exercises that have historically sort of varied to the extent that you included climate as a consideration, but they're very explicit about that. I think that's really good. I think NEPA needs some reform and we have a lot of challenges with NEPA ahead of us, but I do think that being explicit about including climate is super important. You talked, Doug, a little bit about, you mentioned migration. I just want to say that the White House did release international climate migration report just yesterday. So here in the middle or late October, they did release a very good report. It's not 
not referenced in this Homeland Security. It came directly out of somewhere in the White House. But it's very good. I think a number of different immigration advocates felt that it was sort of underwhelming in what it was putting forward for as it related maybe to ongoing emerging ideas of immigration reform. But it was very well researched and well documented about the implications under international refugee law and American domestic immigration law. And there were some substantive and concrete things I think they could do. Very, And I encourage uh, listeners to really go out if you're interested in international climate migration. But here, Department of Homeland Security has worked really in CBP, Customs and Border Patrol. Um, here, they're talking about mass migration and climate-driven mass migration mission alignment and how they can begin. There are these kind of systems out there that are looking at the movement of people and electronic monitoring systems that are uh, constantly monitoring the flow of people across the globe. And and they they draw reference to how climate and environmental considerations are part of that and being integrated in that. It's kind of hard to understand because that's not my area of expertise, but I can at least appreciate that that is being discussed among that constituency. The one thing that I think is really a big gap here is it doesn't really get into the various public assistance programs and other programs through FEMA and elsewhere that reach and that have the same challenges I just talked about, which is that they're so complex. There's cost shares, right? We have very large 25% cost shares. Some programs have waived cost shares. That, and when I say cost share, I mean, I'm going to give you a grant or a loan, usually a grant, but you're going to have to pay for some portion of that. You know, a 25% cost share is pretty common for most of this public assistance work and grants and hazard migration. They they don't really get into any of that at all. And it's not that they have to kind of set up what they think is the reform agenda for Congress. That wouldn't have been appropriate here. But what I think would have been useful is talking about how climate is shifting how they think about those investments, how they underwrite, and how they begin to prioritize certain typologies of action in integrating with climate and integrating essentially climate adaptation hazard mitigation. Now, SHIMCAP is an acronym that many of your listeners may know. This is the hazard state hazard mitigation and adaptation plans. I think 34, probably a little bit more than 34, 35 states now have merged their state adaptation plan with their state hazard mitigation plan. It's called a SHIMCAP. Those are well-developed. That is the heart and soul of most state-level adaptation planning these days. No discussion of that here. I, I don't know how or why, or maybe it's too political because people feel like there's some substantive reform, but a bit of a missed opportunity. Okay. So we are pivoting again here. and We're going to talk about the Department of Housing and Urban Development, or most people know as HUD. What's going on there? Okay. HUD gets the award for worst graphic design, worst layout. Uh, they, I, I'm pretty sure they just dropped this onto some kind of word and then just saved it and just word dropped perfect. the logo in. Uh, there's, <laughs> it's a word perfect document. Is that, by the way, word perfect, far superior to word. I hate to see it. I, I, I mourned its loss. But on this HUD thing, I mean, there's literally a number, there's a page number on the cover. I'm just like, okay, who's in charge? Is anybody reading this? Is anybody at HUD reading this? But which is strange because, again, I promise not to name names. There's a lot of good people at HUD who've done climate work over the years. And I know there's some pretty senior people. I'm guessing they're just too busy to proofread their own document. But here we are, Climate Adaptation Plan, U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. They're promising a lot of research. It's like we're going to... Honestly, I feel like no one really focused in on this this at all because they're basically saying, you know what, we're going to do research on buyouts because they have a buyout program for buying out people who are in high risk areas, building codes. They have the community development block grant 
They have DR, MIT. They have a couple of variations of just basically money they give out. They're just like, we're going to research this and get into this a little later. They're talking about the development and integration of climate-related financial risk assessments for lending and underwriting. FHFA, which the Federal Housing Finance Administration, which is under HUD, really progressive group. I don't want to say progressive in a political or ideological sense, but just progressive and like being on top of things, have been thinking about climate, had a big RFP out on how we think about climate assessments in the transactional and mortgage underwriting system and the housing system. I mean, they've been on it. I don't know if folks at a higher level at HUD have the same level of ambition, but let's highlight what FHFA has been doing because I think they've been doing good work. There's yet to see the outcome of that art of that solicitation of different ideas or requests for information. I said RFP, I misspoke. But but we'll see. And I actually think that there's a lot of activity and I have a lot of faith that they're going to do some good things. Um, they talk in here about lending and underwriting, and they talk about this idea of using the more uh, reduced mortgage insurance premiums to incentivize the adoption of higher building standards. I mean, I don't know how economically effective that is, because normally if you're paying mortgage insurance premiums, there's a kind of credit quality issue, and that may be challenging to pay for higher building standards because now it may increase your costs. Like there's some structural kind of disincentives, and I'm not sure the extent to which uh, a reduction in your mortgage insurance premiums is going to offset the incremental costs that ultimately undermine your the affordability, at least in the short term, not the long-term operational, but the short-term capital investment. So like the math in my head is like, yeah, it sounds like an interesting idea, but did anybody really think it through? Because I, I don't think there's what, a kind of parity there to really truly incentivize action. They did float one interesting idea, which is a new loan product called the Resilience and Energy Assistance Loan, the real loan for title one property improvement. I'm not sure what that is, but I like that. And I like the idea that they're starting to think about perhaps secondary lines of financing um, that could help make investments into um, things that actually promote the engineering resilience of buildings as well as hazard, as well as um, hazard mitigation, but also climate mitigation, right? There's things that we can do to reduce our carbon footprint that are also good in terms of managing risk. And finally, you know, not just educating the workforce, but also getting out there and working with public housing administration and public housing authorities, rather PHAs, to, you know, engage on practices and resilience and adaptation, as well as what those opportunities are. Frankly, I think HUD needs to do a lot of groundwork in alert, not teaching PHAs, but learning. Because I've worked with a number of different advisors, or at least talked to num a lot of PHAs around the country who are dealing with climate. And people are doing really good work. And they're doing good because they kind of had to scrap their way into keeping these buildings up afloat. So I think uh, they need to be a little bit more humble and think about what they can do and how they can exchange that information and kind of scale it up. So really, we're going to end on HUD among all of these plans with a little bit of like, let's take it up a notch, folks, because this was really underwhelming relative to where I think the opportunities are, but for what FHFA is doing, and we got to give those guys a round of applause, but really someone proofread these things next time. Okay, Jesse, you covered a lot of ground there. We didn't cover all the agencies and all the departments. Let's just check in. Let's, you know, I, I know you have some final thoughts around what's going on here. So, you know, like any sort yeah. of additional observations. Yeah, so there's so much we didn't cover. We didn't really talk about State Department or Justice or NASA. Or, I mean, there's so much happening. I really encourage folks to go out there and read this stuff. But I did get an opportunity, and I've read, I think, almost everything. We didn't have time to cover it today, but I think I read most everything. I wanted to go through and sort of textually analyze how these reports and these plans, they're really plans more than they are reports. Let's be 
precise, how they related to each other. How are they internally consistent, but how consistent are they as a group? And so I want to understand like what they were connecting to and really as a kind of measure of quality in a way. And so one of the first things I wanted to understand was who was talking about maladaptation, right? Because anybody who's been engaged in matters of policy and practice, you know that adaptation is one thing, but maladaptation is always on the edge of the horizon, right? And a lot of times, I mean, I remember someone, again, I can't name names. I wish I could to give them credit for this, but a very senior federal official told me one time, you know, the best that we can do is to plan around maladaptation, right? We're not really, we don't really know where we're going in the course of transformation with adaptation, but we know what maladaptation looks like and we can kind of plan and design around that. I think that was very smart. So I wanted to see just looking across all of these plans, who among the 23 departments and agencies was talking about maladaptation or just reference that because it's so analytically central. So General Services Administration, State Department, the Justice Department, Department of Education, NASA, USDA, and Army Corps all talked about maladaptation. Made me feel good, right? It's like, hey, you guys are thinking about this, right? And I can think of a number of different people at those entities that are engaged in adaptation science and kind of thought through this beyond the sort of impetus of of, of a kind of executive order. So that makes me feel good that, that that's making its way. I also wanted to see, you know, externally, in terms of both the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and all of that knowledge and definitions and models that are being produced, but also the National Climate Assessment in the U.S. Global Change Research Program, our sort of the National Climate Assessment is like our equivalent to the IPCC. We're talking about climate change, but are we referencing these very important sort of bodies of knowledge? Well, Somewhat disappointingly, but also not surprisingly, only the Department of Defense, NASA, and the General Services Administration made any references to the IPCC or IPCC definitions, models, ideas, concepts, et cetera, et cetera. So really only three of the 23 were connecting global knowledge. So, you know, here we are, and Kerry's out there and his team are trying to bring us back into the international dialogue about being part of a global community of client knowledge and science and policy and action Yet we're not really internalizing those ideas and practices or just help definitions into our, our work. I want I expect more, but hey, credit to DOT, DOD rather, NASA and General Service Administration for level of quality control here. So the other question was, are we connecting this to the National Climate Assessment, which again, sort of our domestic idea or equivalent to the IPCC. It's consensus. It's based on a lot of work of federal government, the National Academy of Science, experts. It's the thing. Only General Services Administration, the Veterans Administration, Department of Veterans Affairs, I guess, Energy, Transportation, State, Interior, and HUD referenced the National Climate Assessment. And none of it was well integrated at all. So there were a lot of products from the National Climate Assessment. There were a lot of findings. There was even a glossary from the National Climate Assessment that would have been useful for all of these folks. None of that knowledge made it in here. There were references to the National Climate, the findings sort of globally of the National Climate Assessment, but it was not, there was a lot of resources there that could have been well integrated, that could have supported how these entities sort of thought about things and wanted to communicate things. And to that end, because communication and definitions and defined terms are super important. And why are they super important? Because they speak to our own legislative intent and they help guide people and create consistency in our actions so that, well, one, we can hold each other accountable, but we can also measure our impacts and think about if we're doing a good job or not. You know, it's something that 
brings us together around a common idea, common goal. So definitions, and you know, that may sound over managerial, you know, techno managerial or something, but these things matter in very large entities of public administration. And only the Department of Defense, again, Department of Defense and GSA are just killing it here. They're doing a great job. And EPA had definitions or defined terms. And really only DOD, I think, had reasonably good definitions. I mean, GSA had good definitions too. But but EPA, even though they had some definitions, their definitions were not, I, I think someone just made some of these definitions up. So some of the definitions at EPA were, I think this is bad news, were totally off the mark and certainly not consistent with the IPCC or the National Climate Assessment. So either from an international consensus or a domestic consensus about basic definitions for climate change adaptation, adaptive capacity, climate resilience, which is really not a thing because there's different types of resilience, but some people labor under that delusion, and climate change mitigation. The definitions are just patently wrong and inconsistent. And this is coming from the EPA. And I'm, listen, I sound like a terribly academic critique. I sound like the biggest jerk. I can hear myself saying it and sound like a total jerk. But guys, Team, team effort here. We need to get basic core definitions about how we communicate these things need to be consistent. Just go to the glossary at the National Climate Assessment. It's not perfect, but guess what? It's pretty darn consistent with the IPCC and everybody, including the National Academy of Science, agreed that this is what we're talking about. So EPA, why are you going to go out and just create your own definition? It's like, I guess you can do it, but again, who's editing this stuff? Who's in charge? So disappointing EPA. Department of Homeland Security is kind of all over the place, and I'll give them some credit. But let me let's end on a good news. And the good news here is that DOD's definitions, which by the way are self-referenced to DOD Directive 4715.20, that's DOD Directive 4715.20, are amazing. They're totally consistent with the IPCC. And I just want to give them <laughs> as much credit as they could possibly get for having good definitions, being super clear, articulate um, all across the way. So the question going forward is, how are we going to learn from what different agencies are doing? Like, I think there's things that DOD is doing and NASA is doing and GSA is doing that veterans energy and transportation can learn. You know what I mean? There needs to be some exchange here about who's doing what how to consolidate this in a way that gives people flexibility to experiment and do it in their own terms and their own institutional culture and vernacular. But also we need to be consistent. We need to under, if we're going to translate science, we need a more rigorous way to set up our modes of analysis, our methods and our definitions at the end of the day. So I just want to give credit to DOD because I think their leadership here stands out. And I think it's a model for a lot of these other agencies. And, and we're going to get there. And like, I know I sound like I'm crapping on EPA. But listen, as you said earlier, I mean, they lost so many good people during the Trump administration that were pushed out, forced out, fired, you know, quit, whatever it is. So it's going to be, I think, many years before they can build up that level of personnel and expertise that I think that they've lost. And I think it's clear to me in looking through these documents that probably HUD and EPA have just been lost a lot of personnel and a lot of expertise. And it's unfortunate because it comes through. Okay, so I, I want to acknowledge that like, you'd mentioned the National Climate Assessment and who's using it. When I worked for the federal government, it's been a long time, but I, I spoke to like the community engagement group there at the National Climate Assessment on how they could do a better job sort of getting the word out. Because, you know, when I worked in the state of Florida, I, I didn't even know what the National Climate Assessment was. And that's on me to a certain extent, but still, 
I asked people, I'm like, do you use this? And no one said they used it, which is, you know, kind of outrageous. There's a lot of great science. It's a, it's, it's an important initiative, but just people aren't using it. And even when I worked for the federal government and you know how people would go on detail to work on various chapters and sections of it, those people would come back and tell me that, oh, they didn't even want to use the National Climate Assessment sort of as a whole document in the work that we were doing. So even they were part of it. They, they just they found it, I guess, too clunky or whatever. So I, it was always interesting to me that the National Climate Assessment is just this big effort, this big initiative, important work. And yet no one can kind of interface with it relatively well that they're going to actually use it, be it a state wildlife agency or, or like a local conservation group. So, yeah, I, I don't know what this answer is to that. Well, let, let me say full conflict of interest here in acknowledgement that I'm an appointed author and covering the built oh. environment for the fifth National Climate Assessment. And I'm not speaking on behalf of the USGCRP or anybody. I'm speaking and acknowledging that so everybody understands it. But I I do want to give USGCRP and their new leadership a little bit of credit here, maybe a lot of credit, because I think they're really trying. There are new procedures for public and external engagement and outreach through the process of developing the fifth national climate assessment that perhaps will buy get more buy-in and get more engagement with the process, not just the product. So I think they've thought about that. But I will say in its defense, I was also part of the fourth national climate, uh, national uh, climate assessment. And, uh, you know, a lot of state and local governments and even within the federal government, you use it. I mean, they definitely use it. I know that when we wrote our big, now we can kind of look back and say landmark publication at the CFTC on managing climate risk in the U.S. financial system. I relied heavily on the national climate assessment because that was basically statements of fact that we could, or, you know, it was a basis, a reliable basis of authority that we could we didn't have to go and do background on, right? Because everybody could agree upon it. it was approved all the way through. So it's very useful for kind of setting that kind of constitutional basis of like, it's here, this is climate change. We all agree upon it. We don't need to talk, you know, we don't need to get into the details because we can just reference the national climate assessment. So it, it does a lot of different things. It could do more, but I think at its basis, the national climate assessment just sets out this really basic knowledge that we can build upon. So I think there's a lot of opportunity. And I think that the new leadership is probably going to help make it more valuable, more useful. Yeah, no, I, I hope so. And I, th- that was not a critique on the quality of the content. It was just more of how you're using it sort of after the fact, but there was some some problems. So yeah, I hear you. I hear you. All right, Jesse, we just covered a lot of ground. Thank you so much for doing that. I mean, I was reading through them, but I obviously am not digesting. I'm not analyzing like you did. You've, you're, you've done a tremendous service for people who want to understand what the federal government, but yeah, Jesse, any final thoughts before we wrap this up? You know, a lot of work here. Some of it's uneven. We can explain why that is. It takes time to develop these things. Different agencies are working at different speeds. There's a lot of an opportunity um, to build upon this in terms of coordination. Um, but I think we really, you know, this was done in like six months. So give some some real credit to the people at the White House. CEQ, Council of Environmental Quality, for getting this done, getting this out the door. The people, wonderful job, loving everything we see here. And I think we should walk away with one final thing, which is who gets the credit for the best graphic design and the best laid out report, like the most visually stunning. And I want to say visually stunning is Department of State. The State Department is just, they've got some really talented graphic designers there, wonderful layout, super great graphics. I mean, just 
killing it. So we're going to go ahead and give the State Department the award for best designed and most visually appealing plan. That th- Those kinds of things matter, Doug. All right. The first annual America Adopts Best Visual Design of a Department Adaptation Plan and the winner is the Department of State. Congratulations. We'll have a ceremony in D.C. next year. So, yeah. <laughs> all right, Jesse, it is always a pleasure having you on. My head fills up with so much information and such a great resource. Thanks again for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me, Doug. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Jesse for coming on the podcast. Jesse is a regular contributor to the podcast, and it's always a treat to host him. I always feel smarter after talking with Jesse, and this was no different. I hope that was a useful discussion for you. Jesse did the hard part. He went in and read through all those adaptation plans and then shared his expert analysis with the rest of us. For those of you working in government, I hope it was a useful exercise for you. And for those who interact with the government, be it within the nonprofit sector or private consulting, you'll need to understand how an agency is doing around adaptation. With COP26 happening and the world really getting their heads around what it means to adapt to climate change, it's a good sign the federal government is taking it seriously. That said, as Jesse noted, some departments and agencies are doing better than others. This might just be a personnel issue, but I have found in my own experiences within state and federal government, leadership plays a huge role in making sure things are getting done. If a plan is weak, more than likely it reflects the fact the issue is not a priority for the agency, even if it is for the overall Biden administration. CEQ, the Council on Environmental Quality, can only do so much. I have firsthand experience with that. Leading a bureaucracy to make Big changes is not easy work, and it's much harder if that department is only going through the motions. I saw this when I worked at DUI in the first Obama administration. Some agencies were often running around the issue, like DOI. Others, not so much. And on that note, as I said earlier, we decided really quickly we need to do a second part to this episode. We're in the process of prepping for that, and we'll have that out soon, covering departments like Justice, State, and DOI that we missed in this episode. So don't worry, that's on the way. Again, thanks to Jesse for coming on and sharing his expertise. And please do share far and wide in your own adaptation networks. Okay, some final housekeeping. If you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a podcast, consider sponsoring a whole America Adapts episode. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. I frequently go on location and record for those sponsored podcasts, which allows you a wider diversity of guests to participate. You will work with me to identify experts that represent the work you're doing. I've done these with various groups like NRDC, University of Pennsylvania, Wharton, WWF, UCLA, Harvard, University of Florida, and some corporate clients. It's a chance to share your story with all my listeners. Most projects have a communications budget written into them. Consider budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than a white paper or conference presentation many groups work into their communication strategies. My previous sponsors have found the process actually pretty fun since there is a lot of creativity involved. Putting a podcast together is a lot more exciting and satisfying than putting a paper together. Please reach out and let's have a conversation around this so you can learn more. Also, if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. I speak to a lot of groups this way. I've been doing some keynote presentations, and they're so much fun. I share stories from the podcast and my own personal experiences working in adaptation. You can contact me at the website, americadapts.org. And for my regular listeners, podcasts rely on word of mouth. Please take a moment and plug America Adapts on your favorite social media feeds. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And I always reshare if you connect to me. I can't stress enough how important word of mouth is for growing a podcast. Okay, on that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. 
Come on, just say hi. If you have an idea for guests, let me know. It is the highlight of my week. I love hearing what kind of work you're doing in the climate space. And if you're not in the climate space, it's always interesting to me to know why you're getting value out of the podcast. So definitely reach out. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.